Do you remember when you first were converted to Christ? Do you remember your conversion? Maybe you haven't been converted yet. I pray that you will be. I pray that a change, a transformation, a realization takes place in your life. But if you've been converted, I invite you to think about that time when you were literally converted. Now, I understand it's not a term we don't use, it's a term we don't use much anymore, conversion, being converted. We actually like the softer, gentler terminology of accepting and receiving and trusting, and that's all well and good. It certainly sounds less provocative than being converted, the conversion that takes place. But when a person truly repents, honestly confesses they're a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ, then a supernatural conversion happens. The Bible says in Matthew 18, verse three, Jesus speaking says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. John 5, 24, he said, truly, truly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death and into life. That's conversion. Colossians 1.13, Paul says, for he transferred us from the domain of darkness and he, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Conversion a change, a transformation takes place when you put your trust, your faith in Jesus. Jesus told the apostle Paul, he was gonna send him to the Gentiles for this reason, Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, Jesus says. Conversion. Now, Merriam-Webster defines conversion as a change from one form or function to another. We would say a transformation, a restoration, a renovation has taken place. The Bible is more simple than that. In the Hebrew, it's the word shub, and it means to turn back, to return, to turn. In the Greek, it's strafo, which is to turn around, conversion. In the narrative before us, Moses is about to be radically converted. And it all happens at Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is the mount of his conversion. Now, it's gonna take a little bit. God's gonna have to work in Moses. He's gonna have to work through Moses, and truly, we're gonna need to go from Exodus 3 all the way to Exodus 7, which we won't do this morning, to get the full picture of conversion to where his heart is finally overtaken, finally consumed with the delivery call of the Lord that is on him. It takes some time. Conversion, we think of, I, I pray the prayer of faith, I confess my sin, I turn to God, I repent of all I've done, and we think of conversion as immediate, and on the one hand, it is. 
God immediately transfers you to the kingdom of light. But there's a process in conversion of comprehending and understanding and truly receiving what's happened to us. And then our conversion will spill out into a longer process. And this morning, what I wanna do, we'll cover the first 12 verses of Exodus 3, but I wanna travel through the conversion and then life process of Moses, what I'm calling the ark of the converted life. There, there is an arc to it. And we will try to see that as well as look at these opening verses of Exodus 3 and this remarkable story on the mount of conversion, the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. Now, as far as we know, looking at scripture, it had been 430 years plus since God had appeared to anyone. Genesis chapter 46, verse two, God spoke to Israel, that is Jacob, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you a great nation there. I will go with you down to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again and Joseph will close your eyes. Promise received, promise kept. Jacob did indeed go down, God went with him, and he died and was brought back up, buried in Hebron in the cave of Machpelah. Joseph was there with his father, 17 years, the end of his life, to close his eyes. And Jacob's children, the sons of Israel, had become Ambene Israel, the nation of the sons of Israel, just as God said. Now, we looked at this Wednesday. At first, Goshen living was sweet. But the goodness of Goshen turned to a groaning, an ache, as the powers that be imposed heavy burdens and rigorous labor on the Hebrew people. If you look at the end of chapter two, verse 24, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. That is, God knew them. God heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew them. Did Moses? Did Moses? Because as chapter three begins, he'd been away from all that for 40 years. Can you imagine stepping out of the strife and turmoil of our country right now? and going off to a wilderness somewhere remote, somewhere detached, somewhere where the news reports and the, and the ongoing strife is unheard of, the problems, the issues, the concerns of America today, they don't exist. You're just out there with a bunch of sheep. And that's what happened with Moses. And he had been for 40 years. How many of us have concerns that trail back 40 years? I can barely remember last week. And 40 years ago? things that were of such concern to me at the age of 15 that I don't even consider now? Did Moses remember his people? Did Moses think about their plight? Or had he honestly washed his hands of the whole Egyptian debacle? We really don't know. There are those who would like to suppose that Moses was prayerfully crying out for his people across 40 years and God was waiting and then finally, finally took him back. But 
the evidence seems to be that Moses was just there, just shepherding, just having given up. Now, we can't know because who knows what's really in someone else's heart? Well, you know who knows. Jeremiah 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And Romans 8, 27 says, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's a powerful verse because it's talking about Jesus who knows the mind of the spirit interceding according to the will of God, which tells us that Jesus and the spirit and the father are one. Of course, the Lord knows his own mind. And with that knowing, he searches ours. He looks into our hearts. As I believe he was doing with Moses right now. But as we come into Exodus chapter three, again, Moses is far away from the people of his past. A deliverer debunked. Perhaps defeated in his own mind. But God knew him. No doubt God searched his heart and now God is about to test and to call to his mind. And in chapters three and four, an amazing conversion begins to take place as we see Moses go through a radical change. Whether Moses was being turned back to faith in God or turned around for the first time to faith. In Exodus three and four, an amazing transformation takes place in this 80-year-old fugitive. Let's walk it out. Verse one, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The name Jethro, Yitro, means his abundance. His abundance. And while this priest of Midian was a blessed man, had flocks and herds, was abundantly well off. All these years later, Moses doesn't even have a flock of his own. Note that. He's pasturing the flock of Jethro. He's shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. He's still working for his father-in-law. Oh, I hope that Josiah doesn't have to still be working for his father-in-law in 40 years. (laughs) Moses is. What's happened to this one-time prince of Egypt? And note this, that the Hebrew verb form of pasturing, the way it's put together, pasturing there could also be translated shepherding, it implies continuance, We could just as easily read, now Moses was still pasturing the flock of Jethro. He was still doing it. He's been at it a while. J. Alec Modier, that great Irish theologian, commentarian, lover of the word of God, he said, God is not in our kind of hurry. This does not indicate any delaying or dithering on God's part. He wanted a shepherd for his people, so his chosen man had to learn how to look after someone else's sheep. So here, 40 years later, Moses is still shepherding. Psalm 77, verse 20 says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. 
And Moses had to learn this. Listen to this, because this is so contrary to how we think in our human flesh. Moses had to learn the lesson of ordinary, humdrum, everyday, routine faithfulness. How exciting was the last 40 years of his life? Oh, there may have been an animal attack against the sheep at some point. There may have been some difficulty, maybe a lost sheep here and there, problems that you'd have to deal with, but pretty much shepherding stuff for 40 years every day as day turned into week, turned into month. My friends, Jesus wants his people to know how to be faithful in little things. He teaches us over spans of time. Luke 16, verse 10, he said, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So he gives a little, a few sheep, a flock, perhaps even a flock that belongs to someone else for you to tend, for you to follow through, for you to be faithful with as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. God highly values faithfulness. So on a day like any other, Moses led his flock up to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, the mountain of God, Horebah in the Hebrew which can be translated a couple of ways. Dry or desert is the more typical translation of Horeb. But it also can be translated glowing or heat. Glowing or heat. It's called the mountain of God four times in the Bible. This first time here, Exodus 3, verse 1, when Moses met God for the first time. And then in Exodus chapter 4, verse 27, it's called the mountain of God again when Aaron meets up with Moses the brothers reunited. And then when Moses goes up to receive Torah for 40 days and 40 nights in Exodus 24, verse 13, for the third time, it's called the mountain of God. And then finally, the fourth time is when Elijah fled from Jezebel and ran for 40 days and 40 nights south from the region of Israel and arrived there at the mountain of God, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 8. Horeb is synonymous with Sinai. Understand, you can call it either one because in the Bible they are used interchangeably for the same mountain, but note this, get this, it'll be important as we continue in our study. Biblical scholarship puts this mountain, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, in Midian, in Midian. Midian is to the east of the Red Sea Gulf of Akaba. See, the Red Sea comes up and then it divides into two gulfs. In the midst of the two gulfs, you have what we would call today the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt. You have the Gulf of Suez going up to the west and then to the east, you have the Gulf of Akaba. And I've got this turned around, so I'm hoping I'm getting it to you right. I'm trying to do it from your perspective. So here's the Sinai Peninsula with the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba, Egypt up and over this way, and the Promised Land would be up here. Midian is on this side, the eastern shore of the Gulf of Aqaba. 
And the Bible's clear, that's where Horeb is, not in the Sinai Peninsula. Traditional uh, renderings and maps try to put Mount Horeb in the Sinai Peninsula. That's not where it was. It was in Midian. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.25 refers to Mount Sinai in Arabia. If you look on a map today, Saudi Arabia is the area that was once Midian. So that's where Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, would be. And the evidence now today points to a mountain there in Saudi Arabia called Jabal al-Laz, which means the Mount of Almonds. Mount of Almonds. Although the locals have a different name for it. They call it Jabal Makla. Jabal Makla, which translates the burning mountain or the mountain burnt. To this day, when you look at this mountain, Jabal Allahs, Jabal Makla, Horeb, we believe the mount of God, the entire top is blackened as if by fire. Fascinating. Well, it is to me anyway, I don't know about you, but verse two continuing on says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush and he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and yet the bush was not consumed. This is a common desert bramble bush, and yet it hosted no ordinary fire. It hosted a fire that cloaked the angel of the Lord. And this is not the first time that fire has, an, has accompanied the presence of God. Back in Genesis 15, verse 17, a deep sleep came upon Abram, and the Lord appeared. It says it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed through the pieces of sacrifice. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now it's important to note this, the fire, the burning presence as in a flaming torch or a smoking oven, as in the midst of this small little desert bush that is not burning up because the fire is of the presence of the Lord himself, this burning presence we're gonna see throughout Exodus. Again and again, as the Lord is present, he presents in fire. Fiery hail is gonna come down in a plague from heaven. A consuming fire ultimately will be at the top of this very mountain, the mountain of the Lord, Mount Horeb. And Exodus chapter 40, verse 38 tells us throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Why? Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. And while the bush is not consumed, Moses will be. Says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. The angel of the Lord. Who is this angel of the Lord of whom we speak? And if you're a Bible student and you've tracked through the Bible with us at all, you know the angel of the Lord, Hebrew, Malach Yahweh. This is a, what we call a theophany a visible appearance of the invisible God, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But listen, let's go a little further with this than, than we have before. 
that upon further analysis, what we discover in the Hebrew designation, Malach, Yahweh, there's no definite article. What do you mean? There's no the, there's no a, there's no an. It's just Malach, Yahweh. This name appears 67 times in the Hebrew scriptures, only one time in Exodus, and it's right here. So we, we tie back to this, we, we can see this. This is the angel that is Yahweh. Malach Yahweh can also be translated angel Yahweh, messenger Yahweh. Rather than the angel or an angel, it is angel Yahweh, the visible appearance of the invisible God. And listen, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27 tells us, by faith, Moses left Egypt. And we believe it was talking about the second time when he will draw the people out, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Well, that's an impossible statement. You can't see what is unseen. And yet Moses saw him who is unseen. How did he see him who is unseen? Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Martin Payne says these revelations of the unique angel can be appreciated only when understood as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Why are we drilling this? Because conversion happened when Moses saw Jesus. That's vital to the converted heart. It is the seeing of Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me. You gotta see Jesus. So verse three, so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why, the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am, or Hineni in the Hebrew. It's that same phrase that Abraham uttered, Jacob and others after him, the prophets, the response to God, here I am, when you realize that God is talking. Isn't it interesting? Don't you, don't you just marvel at the creativity of God? What he does here to grab Moses' attention. Now we've seen it in the Charlton Heston movie and we've seen it in the Prince of Egypt cartoon movie and we've, we've you know, gotten used to this idea of the burning bush. Oh yeah, the burning bush, story of the burning bush. And it's an interesting story. In fact, the Jewish people even take this image of the burning bush, a bush burning but not consumed, as a symbol of Israel because they like the bush over the centuries have been burned but not consumed. And there are all kinds of interesting perspectives we can take, but if you pause and think, this is the first time this has ever happened. Moses turns aside to look at something that is unique, something that is strange and bizarre. Oh, not a bush burning. These common bramble bushes on hot desert days could ignite, could burn up. You, you could travel through the wilderness of Midian and find bushes like this crumpled and burnt as from fire or perhaps from a lightning strike. But for this bush to be on fire and yet the bush is still green, it's still putting forth its leaves, it's just hanging out. And yet there's a fire present. And this is how God intended to get Moses' attention. Notice this, it wasn't until 
Moses turned aside to look that God spoke to him. He waited for Moses to respond. See, sometimes God will present. He'll do something to grab our attention and we'll be like, nah, nah, I'm not looking. <laughs> la, 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 I'm not listening. No, nah, I don't wanna hear it right now. No, 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 I, I've got too much on my plate right now. Hey, God's taken an awful lot off our plate in 2020. He will do things to get our attention. Man, talk about clearing the table. Out there in the wilderness as Moses goes around to the west side of Horeb and all of a sudden, here's this unique bush set ablaze. But you know what? For all the bushes set ablaze in our lives, conversion will not happen until we turn aside. We turn aside to look we turn to the Lord or we return to him if we have wandered for 40 years. After all, why should the Lord speak to me if I'm indifferent, if I'm ignoring him, if my nose is in other business or my attention drawn off elsewhere? Luke eleven twenty seven 27 tells us when Jesus was saying these things, <laughs> one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that which you nursed. And I don't know why I always go Monty Python with that verse, but he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Have you turned aside to see and hear Jesus lately? Have you taken advantage of this season to turn aside to the Lord, to be in prayer, to dig into his word, to seek his face? You know what, the answer to all this, I said Wednesday night, we don't have a racist problem right now, we have a sin problem right now. Because racism is itself sin. But there is sin being committed in all directions right now, ongoing. And that's the big issue. Have we turned aside? Will we turn aside to the Lord? It's his righteousness and his kingdom that will find us saved. Oh, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You wanna talk about being on the right side of what's happening in our culture? God's side is the right side. There is only one right side. There is only one righteousness. Have you turned aside to the side of the Lord? Have you taken the time to seek him? Well, verse five, Moses now has turned aside and the Lord said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Interesting, the Lord calls to Moses presents to Moses this fire, but when Moses turns toward him, he says, do not come near here. <laughs> well, what are you doing, Lord? He's saving the man's life. Don't come too close, Moses. This is a holy moment. Holy, holy doesn't mean self-righteous, religious, big hats, long robes. Holy is not impressive prayers or emotional outbursts. This is holy ground. Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing 
is holy ground. And I would almost think, man, if it's, if it's hot, fiery, holy ground, I'd want something on my feet. <laughs> I'd want some covering. This is holy ground, not because of what's being presented in terms of the fire. It's holy ground because God is holy and God is here. God is in this place. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 16, he alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. This is the true spirit of God. For to see him would be to blow us away. And so even as he approaches the very presence of the Lord, the Lord says, do not come near here. but Take off your sandals. This is a holy place, a holy moment. It explains why God calls to Moses, why he comes to the angel Yahweh, and why he tells Moses not to get too close. Again, Mottier says, holiness endangers the sinner. Get this. Because the holiness of the Lord is not a passive attribute, but an active force. Embracing all that conforms to it and destroying all that offends it. The trepidation humans feel before the Lord is not the trembling of the lowly before the Almighty or the created before the Creator. It's the fear of sinners endangered by holiness. That's a different view of holiness. The awesome, powerful, potent, active forcefulness of holiness. Do you see why the image of fire expresses this? And throughout scripture, this idea of this consuming force, the very holiness of God. And again, fire is present, pervasive throughout the Exodus, beginning here as a fire in a bush, culminating as a consuming fire on the whole top of this mountain. We've got to recognize the holiness of God even as we turn aside to him, even as we come to him and conversion begins to happen. We don't repent just to one greater. We, we repent to one holy. We turn to one perfect. We kneel before one who is awesome in perfection. Baker says, for unless we have been on our knees, more or less in tears, because of the holiness of God, we have not yet begun. You wanna start the walk with God? And this is why I use the word conversion as a more radical and intense sounding word than accepting, receiving, trusting. Again, all true, we receive his invitation, we accept his lordship, we trust in him as God and savior, that's all true. But conversion, a life changed, a heart transformed happens when we first recognize the holiness of God, the awesome nature of this singular being, no one like him. That's the beginning of conversion. God's simple command that Moses take off his sandals indicates two recognitions right here as conversion begins to happen, and that is obedience and humility. Take off your sandals. Will Moses do it? 
Or will in arrogance and brashness he say, no, these are new sandals. Kind of like them. They're sporty. They're stylish. What do you mean take them off? I'll take them off when I want to. It required obedience for him to slip his feet out of these sandals. It required humility to come barefoot before the presence of the Lord. Obedience, humility and conversion. By the way, there's a third recognition. Look at verse six. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, put yourself in Moses' sandals. Oh, wait, you can't. He took them off. But listen with Moses' ears. Pay close attention to what Moses heard. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, back in the day. I was their God, may they rest in peace. No. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning they're alive right now. I am currently Abraham's God. I am currently Isaac's God, Jacob's God. And Jesus' own commentary on this passage makes that crystal clear for our understanding. Mark chapter 12, verse 26 he said, regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what's the point? Listen, with obedience and humility, a true conversion recognizes resurrection. Conversion recognizes resurrection. In Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, there's your obedience, your humility, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, resurrection, you will be saved. Conversion happens as we recognize resurrection. It ca it's caused, conversion is caused by faith in Jesus' resurrection and ours trusting that he's going to resurrect us as well because he's the God of the living, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the resurrected life who resurrects the dead to life. Remember, remember Sunday morning at the tomb? Oh, the women went down there to see if they could you know, add spices to the body and, and, and honor the body of Jesus. And they go down there and, and as they get there, the stones roll back. Luke tells us they see two angels, one at the head and one at the feet. And, and the two speak to them. And they say, Luke 24, verse five, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. He's alive, resurrection. And so Jesus, the living one, calls us to turn aside and see his resurrection so we can be confident that he will convert these vulnerable bodies of death into vessels of life. Conversion. This should knock us off our feet after we've already been knocked off our feet by his holiness. Because what this means is the moment conversion begins, as I am converted, I'm not just converted in my mind. I am converted in my spirit from a dying body to a living spirit to an eternal life. 
Jesus said, now listen to me on this, because there's a, there's a kind of a common church attitude that I've heard a lot in my lifetime, and, and I think it's missing something. John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Absolutely true. It's what we see going on in our culture. Beginning with the killing of George Floyd and continuing with the stealing and the killing and the destruction that we see going on throughout our country. The thief comes to do that. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, here's the thing that, concerns me in our comprehension of the abundant life. A lot of emphasis has been put on life abundantly right now. Come to Jesus and live your best life now. Come to Jesus and begin the abundant life right now, and I don't deny that life is far better in Christ, that walking with Jesus is far more abundant than walking without him. However, abundance falls woefully short if it's not eternal. Eternal life is what he promises us. And yes, it begins with the moment of conversion as the heart and mind and and body are being converted, but it continues. This is eternal. What we're dealing with right now is temporary. The abundant life is the eternal life. These bodies will be resurrected to live forever with Jesus, who is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who at that time were still alive, though their bodies were buried in Machpelah. Their spirits were alive. He's the God of the living. And this eternal life, eternally abundant, is what Peter calls in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, our living hope. Man, strip that away to abundance now, only now, focused on now, and hope begins to dissolve. But you remember that life is abundant eternally, and hope is ignited like a fire in a bush. Verse seven, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. Note that. I've seen them, I've given heed to them, I'm aware of them. This is the present God, one who is fully comprehending and seeing everything going on in our world. From then to now, I'm aware of their sufferings. So, verse eight, I have come down to deliver them from the hand, literally the hand, not the powers, the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up. I love that. He comes down to bring them up. It's the pattern that we see that is pictured throughout Scripture. We see it with Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. By the way, the trump of God, that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, is also called, in 1 Corinthians 15, the last trumpet. Guess what? The first trumpet will sound atop Mount Horeb. We'll hear it later in our study through Exodus. But he says the Lord will descend, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with those who, are, who died in Christ, raised up with them to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Hey, you need some comfort this morning? 
He's the God of the living and he is coming down to bring you up. Coming down to bring you up. As he would come down, he says, he has come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Exactly as he promised Abraham in Genesis 15, some six centuries earlier, promise given, promise kept. I'm coming down to bring you up to the place that I promised would be yours. Verse nine, now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now. Emphasis now. Now's the time. Now it's time to go. Come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. The time is right. The time is now. Because when the moment of the Exodus comes, God does not delay. Moses has been still shepherding for 40 years, but now it's time to go. Now it's immediate. We've said before, the time may seem long in this humdrum, common, ordinary, daily world. But when God moves, he moves now. He moves immediately. We best be ready to go when he's ready to move because he's instantaneous when it's time. Revelation 22:20 20 says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. You Revelation students know, quickly is in a taxi. I'm coming taxos, which means like revving up. When the coming begins, it will be very fast. And so John writes, amen, come, Lord Jesus. But Moses said to God, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Moses reminds me of C.S. Lewis, who described himself in his book, Surprised by Joy, as, quote, a most reluctant convert. We'll see more of this foot-dragging conversion in our next study because as I said, the conversion takes a little bit of time here. God working in and working on Moses to comprehend that the power is not within him. The power is from the Lord himself. But watch this. Verse 12, and he, that is the Lord, the angel of the Lord, Malach Yahweh, Jesus, said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Moses, I'm sending you to Egypt. You're gonna get the people out and you're gonna be back here worshiping me. And in that moment, you're gonna remember and know I'm the one who did it. I love how he ties in worship because it's in those moments of worship that we remember, we recognize he's the one who moved. He's the one who did it. He's the hand in our lives. And Moses, here's your sign. You want a sign? Here's your sign. 
you're gonna bring the people out and worship me at this, not just out in the wilderness somewhere, at this mountain, the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. The sign is the fulfillment of the process at Horeb. Now listen, because here is what I like to call the ark of the converted life. Here's the larger picture that we're gonna see play out over several chapters. Four mountains in the life of Moses beautifully describe this. Really three, but, but the first mountain is like two mountains. Watch this. Number one, number one, Mount Horeb. The mountain of conversion. Mount Horeb, the mountain of Moses' conversion. Back in verse one of Exodus three, that Moses was pasturing, still shepherding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. He comes to the mountain there in the bush that is burning and yet not consumed. He meets Malach Yahweh. He begins to be converted, to be changed, radically transformed there on the mount of God. So Mount Horeb, for Moses, the mountain of conversion. Yet, again, verse 12, he says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So this same mountain is both the mountain of conversion and it's the mountain of divine revelation. It's conversion and it's revelation. See, Moses is originally converted by revelation on this mountain of God, but he's also gonna bring the sons of Israel back to this same mountain where they will be converted by revelation. See, conversion for another always begins with one. This is one of God's amazing plans in the history of humanity, word of mouth. The one by one by one by one conversion or converted lives. And it begins with one person converted to the Lord, but then spreads out to the many. Listen to how David put it. David says, Psalm 51, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a, with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. When? When I've been converted. When there's a conversion that takes place in me. And by the way, with David, he had already been converted in faith. Now he was being converted in repentance and by forgiveness into restoration. So we talk about conversion as that moment when we come to the Lord, but our lives need ongoing conversion. We need transformation that continues to happen. I am not the fool I was when I was 10 years old and got converted to Jesus. No, I'm a much older fool <laughs> who still comes to the Lord for a transformed mind and a renewed heart. One crying out, don't take your spirit from me. Oh Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. And as I continue in my path of conversion before the Lord, that ark of conversion, then I am used by him and I will teach transgressors 
his ways and sinners will be converted. See how that works. And so Moses converted this mountain, goes and gets the sons of Israel and brings them to this mountain for a holy conversion, for a radical change in perspective and understanding. And it'll be pretty ugly. We'll get there. But that's where it happens. The mount of conversion, the mount of revelation. And after we are converted, we go back to the mount of conversion again and again, bringing others with us to the same converted life. Paul said, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. What does that mean? Take people back to the place of your conversion. Take them back to your first love with you. Show them what it was about Jesus that changed your life. And you keep going back there. I keep going back there for the transformation that comes on the mountain of God. And of course, what makes all the difference in our inviting people to the converted life is our own clean hearts. It's the presence of his Holy Spirit. It is the joy of our salvation. Are you joyful in your salvation? The world needs to see it on our faces, folks, that we are excited about the coming of the Lord, that we are looking to that glorious day. That's where our living hope is, in resurrection the joy of our salvation, and then steadfast, willing spirits, we will still be shepherding when he comes. That takes discipline, which takes us to the second mount. If you call, we'll just call the first mount, not two. It's, it's the mount of conversion and revelation. But since it's the first mount, we'll just call that mount number one, mount number two, mount Pisgah. Mount Pisgah, P-I-S-G-A-H which is among the mountains of Nebo, we call this the Mount of Discipline. Because what follows conversion must be discipline. Let me just read this to you. Deuteronomy 34, verse one. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. A few of us were privileged to stand there several years ago. It's remarkable. You can look down and see all of the land of Israel before you. A beautiful panoramic view. And the Lord showed him, that is Moses, all the land. Gilead, as far as Dan and all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, and the Negev, and the plain in the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar, and then the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants or your seed. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. Now, this is a truth. If you've studied the life of Moses, you know. Moses blew it. We'll read the story when we get to Numbers chapter 20, that God tells Moses, I want you to speak to the rock that water will come forth. See, before the Lord said to Moses, strike the rock that water would come forth. And he did so and water flowed out for the people. Well, now, this second time they're at a rock and the people are dying of thirst and they're crying out to the Lord and they're grumbling and complaining. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the rock and the water will come forth. Instead, 
Moses struck the rock twice out of anger. In fact, you kind of wonder, is this that old anger of Moses from, from back before? Is this old angry Moses? See, he went to Midian for some anger management training. Well, now, seems like that anger's back. He strikes the rock. He calls the people, as it were, morons. And then, and then the Lord says, Numbers 20, verse 12, because you have not believed me to treat, listen, to listen, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now think about this. Okay, we know Moses lost the promised land would not go into the promised land. you wonder, though, there was a lot of journeying between Numbers 20 and Deuteronomy 34. A lot of distance between Meribah and Pisgah. And all the way in between, Moses knew he wouldn't make it. Moses had to lead the people through the wilderness in the 40 years of wandering, knowing he's not going into the promised land. He will never, as it were, make it out of the wilderness alive. He's gonna die, be buried by the Lord, Deuteronomy 34, on Mount Pisgah. And so I call Mount Pisgah the Mount of Discipline. The Mount of Discipline. Ever feel like you've come so far in the Lord only to pull a stupid, to sin an old sin? to think, well, I thought I conquered that one. I thought I had bested that. I'm so much better now. I've changed, I've matured. And here comes this old ugly sin you hadn't thought about or engaged in for years, decades, but there it is again. Moses spent all that time, many, many years from Meribah to Mount Pisgah in discipline. The discipline of knowing he'd wake in the morning and could remember, I'm gonna wander with this people. This is, this is the rest of my life. This is my journey. I will not go into the promised land. Think about the impact of that discipline on Moses. Even the deliverer needed discipline because knowing that he had lost the promised land, knowing that God had him under the hand of discipline was both sanctifying and it was humbling. It would have worked in Moses to continue leading the people as a servant shepherd rather than becoming some kind of self-glorified Pharaoh. There's a nation of people. Moses, their great, grand, and glorious leader. Can you imagine how heady that would be? Can you imagine being the boss man in charge of three plus million and you lead them into the land of promise and they erect a monument to you, statues to your name, forget the golden calf. How about a golden Moses? God said, you're not going in. And this discipline worked to keep the deliverer humble, to keep the shepherd a servant and the servant a shepherd. And so we see this ark 
in Moses' life, beginning at Horeb, the mount of his conversion, mount of revelation. And we see coming all the way to Pisgah, the mount of discipline. But you know what? There's one more mountain. Remember, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And the final ark of the converted life is Mount Hermon, the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse one, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Some say that that's that little Camelback Mount down in the midst of the Jezreel Valley. I'm pretty convinced it's Mount Hermon in the far north of Israel. As the Bible describes it, up in the region of Caesarea Philippi, that's where Jesus and the apostles had just been. They end up on Mount Hermon, a high mount, out away from the people. And Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Well, nobody's had done that since Moses. And his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, words weren't even out of his mouth, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Don't miss this. Here's Moses standing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in the promised land after all. From the Mount of Conversion to the Mount of Discipline, the converted life finds itself on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the arc of the journey. Conversion through discipline to final transfiguration. Behold, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, transformed, converted in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality, and that's the final conversion. Have you been converted to Jesus? Do you remember the moment you gave your life to him, that conversion began in you, and that you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Do you remember that? Perhaps that Mount looms in your distant past. But part of that ongoing process, that ark, is the mount of discipline. You know, he has been disciplining me over these last 11 weeks. I believe he's disciplining all of us in the way we need to be disciplined so that we won't think ourselves pharaohs, but simple servants. But ultimately what's coming is our transfiguration when the perishable puts on the imperishable. And Moses is there in the promised land. Such is the grace of God, having gone through conversion and discipline to be at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. This is our final conversion. So I leave you with this. 
Remember, Isaiah chapter 52, verse seven says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news, the gospel of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns, whether you are just converted or you are on the Mount of Discipline or you are peering right into transfiguration, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the gospel. One to one to one to one. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the potent example we see in Moses. A life converted. A life disciplined. And a life transfigured, truly. Lord, we move through this, each of us. And at the beginning of it, I pray for conversion. I pray, Father, if there's anyone listening this morning who has not been converted, taken out of the domain of the devil into the kingdom of your light, Father, I pray conversion this morning. I pray a converted life will begin right now. And if that's you, pray with me. Lord Jesus, convert me by your lordship by your authority, I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I have transgressed and I stand before your holiness and it makes me shudder. But I come under your authority now asking that you would save my life by your resurrection in Jesus' name. Now, Father, I pray for those who are on the cusp of the converted life I pray for so many of us who right now are in the midst of discipline that we would recognize what this discipline is. Why we're having to go through what we are. Why are we in this season of the world, Lord? Experiencing the things we're experiencing. And as with Moses, Lord, there is this beautiful, all-consuming, fatherly discipline that is taking place among us. Oh, Lord, may we have the heart to receive your holy work in us and bring us, Lord, to the mount of transfiguration, to our transformation when this old perishable body puts on the imperishable and the abundant life explodes into eternity. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, comfort us with that living hope. 